Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is a, another episode of Dorico Dialogues, and today I have with me Barry Douche. That's that's how you say it, right? Deutsch. 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 <laughs> My bad. I was, I should have asked you that before I started recording. <laughs> that's okay. It just brings me third grade flashbacks. Oh my god, that happened all the time with you, didn't it? <laughs> Pretty frequently. Oh my god. Yeah, I had that same problem with my first name. Like it's Dorico, but oh yeah, yeah. I was called everything uh, everything but my name for years. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So I get it. I trust me. But Barry Deutsch is a left wing political cartoonist and he's been at this for quite some time and I highly recommend y'all check it out. Barry Deutsch, with anything you'd like to say? Thanks for having me on your podcast. I appreciate it. All right. So my question I want to ask you is like, I guess I'll ask the when first. When did you start doing this? Like full, like full time going into you know political cartooning. Uh, well, full time into political cartooning is relatively recent. I mean, I've been doing political cartoons uh, since I was at Portland State University twenty years ago or something, fifteen years ago. But it was. Trying to make a living at it back then was like hitting a concrete wall, um, you know, because at that point, local cartoonists mainly still earned a living by being in newspapers. Right. And newspapers were dying. Yeah. So, um, so it really was a bad time to be trying to break in. And I'd meet with syndicate people or whatever, and they'd be like, ah, oh, this is great. We have we have no way to sell it. And then I switched into doing uh, children's graphic novels for a while. I did a series called Hereville about an 11-year-old Orthodox Jewish girl who fights monsters. Oh. And uh, there were were still in print. And it was like night and day to suddenly move from a dying field to a actually living and growing field. So you, you, like you definitely adapted to the internet. Yep. And then Patreon came along. And Patreon has made it possible for me to make a living from my political cartoons. So making a living from my political cartoons is really just a last couple of years thing. Oh, yeah. I guess I say hey, Patreon really is a... Well, they say within the span of 20 years, it's an absolutely recent thing. Because so, I, I imagine nothing, nothing even remotely similar existed in the same vein. No, no. The ability to usually be supported by readers, by fans, even if you're someone with a relatively small fan base like me, that's a brand new thing. Never happened before the internet. Damn. So what'd you do, like, to, to get by until it got to this point? Well, as I said, uh, Hereville was a full-time living for me for years. Kids' graphic novels, and I still work in that field. Before that, before Hereville, I spent many years as a wedding coordinator, and that was actually a bunch of fun. It's like directing junior high school pageants for a living. Well, that now that now that that, leaves me with a lot of questions because I can't even imagine how that, like, how you even get into that field. You know. Well, I answered an ad in the in the help wanted section. Uh, This is at a. I'm in Portland, Oregon. This is at. Um, a historic church building in Portland, and they were looking for someone to do office work and coordinate weddings. And I had a little bit of theater background and mm-hmm. was able to fake confidence at you. So they hired me, and it turned out to be a lot of fun. 
I eventually became the assistant manager of the building, but still was still doing weddings until finally the first Hero book came out. And that's when um, I resigned from that. But I guess I was doing weddings for over a decade. Ah, dang. I'm sure you've seen some crazy weddings. Yeah, you know, TV has lied to me. You know what I've never seen, not once? And I have been at way over a thousand weddings. Right. I have never once seen someone get abandoned at the altar. What? I know. And in TV and movies, that's like every other wedding. Every other wedding. But, I've seen that. Like, I, like, Not about thinking about it. Yeah, I've only ever seen that in the movies and TV shows. But that, you, that, that's never happened once for you? No. there was The closest we came was a wedding that was canceled the day of. But that didn't get as far as the altar. Yeah. That, 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 <laughs> so, that canceling the day of is one thing. That's not like leaving somebody at the altar. Way less dramatic. Yeah. Um, now, the majority of brides were super nice. And so the bridezilla thing really didn't turn out to be true. Ah. Um, and it was a nice job, but I eventually got to the point where I could, you know, uh, coordinate the wedding in my sleep. And <laughs> uh, I found myself there. actually actually craving difficult, fractious families. Because that would make it my job a little bit more of a challenge. Yeah. So, It'd be nice to have an actual challenge. I dig, I dig. Give me one second, Barry. I'm going to... Let's, let's test this audio real quick. As I say, I, um, my recording... At, I'm thinking it's picking up you twice. Let me just check real quick. All right. Now we're back. Had to just do a slight admission on the audio test. And everything's, everything's going peachy. What I wanted to ask you, Barry, um, you said help wanted ads. And I'm like, I'm, I must be really young because that, that's uh, help wanted in the newspaper ads. That's old. Yes. And it was a section in newspapers back in the Stone Age. It, oh, it my just God. Hundreds of little ads at the back of the paper. And you just go through read them one by one, trying to find the ones that would apply to you. Jesus. Um, so. Those are definitely the Stone Ages, because holy crap, I can't imagine doing that. Oh, man. Now, for me, the jobs were all in, like, the job section. When my mom was applying for jobs for the first time, uh, she had to turn to the women's job section. Wow. Oh, wow. That is definitely a relic of the past. Holy shit. Yeah, I was surprised by that. That had never even occurred to me that they would have done it that way. But of course they did. Of course they did. Of course. Oh, my God. It was probably a black section, too, at one point. Jeez. I didn't know, but it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. Um, would, yeah, it wouldn't. I was surprise. once working for. Sorry. No, no, keep going. I once worked for a temp agency in Manhattan, and I was like doing uh, secretary word processing temp work, which was actually perfectly pleasant, mm-hmm. and it was the highest I've been paid in my life. I, which you know, this was. I guess the early 90s that I was making, you know, $20, $22 an hour. Man, that was a lot back then. Um, it really was. Uh, then I read in the newspaper that the, the city attorney or someone like that, this was meant decades ago, so I don't remember the details, was bringing them up on charges of discriminating against black temps. What they were doing was offering the good jobs to the white temps. And so I quit work. I quit working for that agency, of course, but, you know, I was still a temp. I was working for other agencies, and 
probably they were all doing the same thing. Who knows? Who knows? You, I mean, unless there's somebody actively, you know, documenting all that, you never really know. But damn, that is... Oof. I'm sure stuff like that still happens because it's more like an unwritten rule, you know, when it's the standard. Like I said, unless, unless somebody notices the pattern, it's just a thing that's just going to keep happening, you know? Right. You know, sometimes scholars do those um, audit tests where they'll, like, send identical resumes to a bunch of employers, but one of them will have a name or a neighborhood implying that the person applying is black. Mm-hmm. And the other will have a name and neighborhood implying whiteness. And uh, the white applications always get more callbacks. Jeez. Yeah. There was one, one study, you probably heard about this, found that being black, that is having a name associated with African-Americans, was more of a disadvantage in the job market than a criminal record. Yeah, I actually do remember that study, and uh, again, that the what you listed is something I've definitely uh, uh, heard of throughout the years, multiple times. You know, using the black, just black people name generally perceived as black people names, and uh, yeah, the, the, basically the other resumes, even if they were completely identical, were thrown out every time. Ah, sorry about that. Hey, you're kind of yeah, uh, you were just kind of getting very distant. Yeah, sorry about that. I was fixing something over here. So one of these cords was a bit scrambled. Oh. Cool. Yeah, I don't, want, I don't want no electrical issues. Ah, so that leads me to my next question then. What, um, because everybody has a thing that I guess moved them more, uh, moved them to their particular positions in politics. I guess what, what moved you to yours? Like, what was your, what was your entryway, I guess, into the more left-wing politics? Oh, man, you just said everyone has one. And the truth is, I have no idea. I've always been left-wing. You know, I mean... No, I, I feel you. I'm definitely um, similar to that in that I uh, always was more susceptible to that. Like, even when I joined the military, you know, none of that... Because the military is definitely more, even if unconsciously, very right-wing, but none of it really... None of it appealed to me. It just, it just never did. Mm-hmm. And, when I, and when I saw that my health care was covered for, like, was not, I never had to concern myself with the cost, it, like, it just crossed my mind from there. Like, wait, why isn't this, why isn't this the standard throughout the whole country. And then it was just all downhill from there for me on that. Um, I remember like in high school, there was uh, under Ronald Reagan, the U.S. invaded Granada, and which is now a mostly forgotten event. But I organized a, a little completely ineffective protest at my, in my high school cafeteria. Yeah. So it goes back at least that far. You and I remember I would spend hours practicing drawing caricatures of Ronald Reagan. I don't know if they were any good, but I certainly worked on them. I mean, that, 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 that's just, is that what you would say was you starting to pull like political cartooning? That would have been the first political cartoons I did was, uh, you know, drawing little cartoons of Reagan saying ridiculous things. Uh, you know, with the theme that either Reagan is evil or Reagan is stupid. I think I vacillated between those two themes and it's weird because reagan looks so much better now that we've experienced trump now i definitely want to ask that your comparison between the two because reagan has been largely sanitized but would you say like i guess compared to trump how like how would you compare them trump does well let me start over reagan in some ways gave a shit that trump did it that trump does it Reagan 
as blatant and as horrible as he was, he was terrible. Right. Still had this feeling that he had to get his job done. Still had this feeling that he had to maintain some relations with Congress, even if Congress was uh, temporarily controlled by the Democrats. So I don't want to sanitize Reagan uh, because he was terrible. But he was less terrible because he did have some sense of responsibility for his position. Mm -hmm. Trump simply doesn't have that. Yeah, I noticed that. And and I'm I'm 25, so I don't know where this started exactly. I don't know where the exact point was when it started, when even Republicans stopped believing in governing. You know what I mean? Like, at the bare, like I said, there are a lot. There are no shortage of flaws with the Democratic Party. And as as a Democratic Party operative, I'm, I'm heavily critical of the Democratic Party. But the big difference, the big distinction I keep trying to spell out to people is that this, there is a fundamental difference between the two parties in that one, despite all their flaws, actually still believes in governing. You know what I mean? Like, actually making exactly. the institutions, whereas the other has pretty much thrown that out the fucking window. They don't even, like, they, they don't even want to pretend they give a shit about representative democracy or governing or government or anything. Yeah, there's, I mean, it seems to me like it happened in a series of steps. Uh, George Bush Sr., when he was president, mm-hmm. ran on a promise of no new taxes. And then when push came to shove, he ended up go, uh, cooperating with the Democrats on a tax increase because he felt it was necessary to balance the budget. There was no other way. And that's a major reason that he was a one-term president, because his party, his base, was really angry at him. Uh, his promise for no new taxes. His wording was, read my lips, no new taxes. So that quote really came back to bite him. So I think that that really taught the Republicans a lesson that being too fussy about responsible governance can uh, hurt you politically. They took the wrong lesson entirely from that. Yeah. And then Newt Gingrich came and uh, Newt really pushed the Republicans so far in in the direction that eventually became Trump. Uh, in the direction that said that beating the Democrats was absolutely the first, second, and third priorities, and governing came somewhere down the line after that. After that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's what you would say. Because like I said, I always wondered about where that split was. Because again, the Republican Party of now today is nothing like it, not even a fraction of what it used to be. And that makes a lot of sense. And, they, it's, and that's just crazy to me. You know, they took the wrong lesson from the uh, him raising taxes instead of thinking, okay, not raising taxes is it's just not feasible uh, when, when you need uh, to raise taxes in order to balance the budget. Instead, they came from the conclusion of even just that's doing that, like uh, doing like that, essentially promising any kind of government is just is a losing gambit for the for Republicans. They know we just we can't do anything like that. So just be absolutely against that no matter what. Otherwise, we will lose in our own party. Yeah, and I don't think it was a single turning point. I think it's more like a series of events which pushed them in that direction. Yeah. But I think that was the, that's the earliest one that I noticed. Yeah, and that's definitely um, one that, that worth noting. Yeah, for sure. Because um, what was I gonna say on that one? That's um, that's weird. They say it's, it's not just taxes. Obviously, there's social issues like the more accepting of you know of gay people and black people and such and such that any Republican became it did. It started pissing a lot of them off. Yeah, although, you know, some things they succeed on, some they don't. I mean, at this point, 
young Republicans today are so much less homophobic oh, yeah. uh, than they were a quarter century ago. Mm-hmm. By the way, it just occurred to me I'm, almost, I'm pretty much exactly twice as old as you, and that freaks me out a little. Oh, man. Um, hey, ain't nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's, it is yeah. what it is. You have much so, knowledge to impart on me, the young blood. <laughs> well, that's a nice way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is I'm a quarter century closer to death. Oh, but either God. way. <laughs> Ah, don't be so hard on yourself. You've done, you've done plenty in your time, you know? That's something to be proud of. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult thing to talk about because I don't want to make it sound like the Republicans back in the 80s were great. Because no, of course. they were enormously damaging, but they've... And if you asked me then, I would have thought it, they can't get worse than this, but they got <laughs> so much worse. And it's because I keep on underestimating how terrible they would be. Even as recently as Trump versus Clinton, that election, I thought that there would be a critical mass of Republicans who would not be willing to go so far as to vote for a TV host conspiracy theorist. And I was completely wrong about that. There's a small sliver that won't, but not a critical mass, not enough to prevent Trump from winning the election. I think a significant uh, number of people have been getting it, have been underestimating them for a very long time. Because it's like, yeah, in hindsight, we can look at it and, and put the pieces together as to what led to this. But I get like, going all going through it, yeah, of course you just give them the benefit of the doubt and think, okay, they can't get worse than this, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't go that far, right? This will be the line, right? And then they just keep going. And the conclusion I've come to is, the, is what motivates them more than anything that I think people do underestimate is spite. It's just pure, unadulterated spite. So much so that they, and when you're motivated by spite above all things, you, you, there's no limit. There's no line you won't cross. And, they, and the Republican Party and its base has just been spiting. It's just been doing everything, even if it hurt them, just out of spite. At least that's the conclusion I've come to. Yeah, and there's the mix of elements. There's the people who were like sort of in party who I think were aware that their base was resentful, was racist, all this stuff, but uh, figured, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go along with our base so that we can get the tax cuts for the rich we want and so on. But it's turned out that the base was actually more powerful and more in control. Way more than they thought. Way more than they thought. Like, you end up with the never-Trump Republican types like Tom Nichols and Rick Wilson, who are just shy. They who, by their own admission, they thought these guys were just a small, you know, uh, a small sector that, you know, they thought was, we need need them, but they're not that strong. Like, they don't have that much of a hold on the party. You know, you got your intellectual conservatives and all that. But each one of them have essentially been ousted by the increasingly more rapidly racist, conspiratorial nut jobs that are taking over, that has completely taken over the party. And it's just, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. But it, it is the truth. It, like, it is, this is the, the nexus of what it all really was. You know what I mean? And it's hard for, like, squishy liberals like me, because I long for a Republican Party I can respect. Sure. Not agree with, but, you know, respect that I can believe is responsible. But I've lost that. There was a big shock to my feeling that there was something that I respect uh, when the Supreme Court ruled on Bush versus Gore. Mm -hmm. 
that really shook my naive belief that I had an agreement on the idea of democracy, yeah. on the idea of counting the votes. Um, and then the election of Trump uh, kind of eliminated whatever remaining idealism yeah. I had whatever about the yeah. GOP. Damn, that's it. So, I want to deal with it. That definitely brings that up. What, obviously, you were there for all that. What, because that is still a thing that is contentious talked about to this day, the Bush v. Gore thing. Like, what, what happened with all that? Because I don't, I don't really, I, I would say I wasn't there, but like, what happened with all that with uh, Bush and Al Gore? Uh, well, what happened is it came down to who would win Florida, and Florida's election was incredibly close. And the thing is, any time you're counting millions and millions of, of votes, there's going to be some marginal votes which are a little bit fuzzy. Right. Uh, but usually we're talking a few hundred votes, and it doesn't matter because the election is never decided by a few hundred votes. Right. But that election came down to a few hundred votes the government of Florida at the time was being run by George Bush's brother. Oh, um, the Republicans, so it kind of came down to the Gore people were pretty confident that if they got a genuine full recount, they would, they would win the election. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to do that because you can't just say recount. You need to get the court in Florida. The courts need to order it. Yeah. And the courts weren't in that full statewide recount, which is what they wanted. So they decided to pick a particular county that they figured they would, that they thought, where they thought Gore's votes were undercounted. Right. And sued for that. And if that county was recounted and showed an undercount, uh, that Gore's votes were undercounted, then that would be leverage for them to go back to the court and, and say, look at this, we need, to re- we need to recount the entire state. Right. And recounting the entire state would have um, given them a bunch of help. But the Republicans were working very hard to make sure there was no recount. And this, uh, to the point of having a mob of people come to the building where people where recounting was going on yeah, and rush the building and pound on the glass. What they, and, like, what they call it? The Bush Brothers Riot or something? What was that called again? Yeah, the Brooks Brothers Brooks Riot Brothers. because a lot of the a lot of the people there were basically uh, right wingers imported from Wall Street and so associated with Brooks Brothers suits. Damn. Um, and it ended with some things like, for instance. An example of votes that went, that ended up not being counted right. was if someone fill, filled in the bubble next to Al Gore, and then on the thing where you're supposed to write in if you want to do a candidate who's not on the list or something, right. they would also write Al Gore. And under Florida law, if you can tell the intent of the voter, you're supposed to count the vote. But the Republicans successfully got double votes like that thrown out. And again, normally that wouldn't make a difference because we're talking about like, you know, five, six hundred double votes. But in this election, it did. And so um, the Supreme Court interceded. The Supreme, the Republican majority on the Supreme Court interceded and they 
they ordered that no more votes be cast. And I think the and that is how George Bush won the election. And I think the lesson Republicans took from that, I think it's why they've increasingly since then just invested heavily in packing the courts at every chance they get. I think that's they they took the lesson from that that for them to win they gotta they gotta control the law, the courts. That's how that's that's the only way they can win. Like they 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 they've abandoned all attempts to reach out to anyone outside of their base. It just seems like they've increasing uh increase the efforts to make the our democratic process is basically is not as democratic as possible. You know what I mean? Right. And they have some structural advantages in that. I mean, the electoral college is a huge advantage for them and means that they can continue to appeal to only a minority of voters and still win elections if they're at all close. Because they don't have to win a majority of voters. They just need to win a majority of voters in the states that the Electoral College makes a little bit more powerful. That is. So that, that leads me, because I, I have my take on Electoral College based off that, and personally I'm opposed to it. Where does that, where does that leave you with the Electoral College? I'm completely opposed to it. The Electoral College was created as part of a system as a compromise with people who wanted to keep slavery going. Right. And it's not like, you know, James Madison didn't sit down in a room with Tom Jefferson and say, you know, rub their palms together and say, okay, let's design this electoral college to preserve slavery. But they didn't do that. But no option that didn't give an advantage to the slaveholding states, and especially to Virginia, would have been acceptable and would have passed. So it wasn't a matter of a conspiracy. It was a matter of the slaveholding states were powerful enough to make sure that their interests were protected in the design of the Constitution. And part of that was an electoral college, which gave an advantage to the slaveholding states, and especially Virginia. You hear all the time nowadays people defending the electoral college by saying, oh, it's there to the small states, it's to empower the small states. Virginia was the largest state in the Union by population. And the way the system was designed, they I think something like five out of our first six presidents were Virginians. Yeah. Because the system wasn't empowering small states. It was empowering the largest slave slave owning states. Yeah. Damn. So my take on the Electoral College is that we won't really have democracy until we get rid of it or at least undermine it so it's only there as a formality, but it doesn't have any actual effect. Yeah, for sure. So then my next question is, because right now is a increasingly uh, a topic of debate right now is electoralism, you know, is it worth, uh, is electoralism, you know, even worth still investing in, you know? Uh, particularly because a lot of people essentially have given up on the electoral process. Where's your take on that? I don't think, we, <laughs> I don't think we should give up on it. I mean, even with all the we had, uh, there were substantial improvements made during the Obama administration. There are substantial improvements being made in some states where Democrats are in control. And it's always opposed and it's always difficult. But I mean, what's the alternative to election? Violent revolutions? I mean, I don't I mean, people who live in that. People like dabbling in accelerationism, which I've been warning. If you see one of my videos, I've been warning against that. Like, hey, guys, you know you want to abandon electoralism, but maybe 
maybe we shouldn't because uh the the very idea that we even have a democracy even the, the thinnest sense is like the only thing protecting us from the rabid uh you know bloodthirsty maniacs and militias out there that are itching to you just start you know stamping out opposition you know what i mean just the thinnest veneer of structure through electoralism is the is the barrier that's protecting us so that that's the conclusion i came to yeah i mean i do not think uh I think that people underestimate just how terrible uh, being in a country at war would be. And in the United States, we've been ridiculously lucky about that because not since the Civil War, that if I'm remembering correctly, not since the Civil War have we had a war fought in, within our own country. Yeah. And I, people have forgotten how horrible that would be. Yeah, we definitely have sporadic cases of, uh, you know, of organized terrorist attacks by, like, militias, the KKK, so on and so forth. But, like, an all-out actual war? No. And I think that has made people complacent as to not... They, they lack the imagination of what it feels like to live in a war-torn country. And also, people have a hard time accepting uh, the idea of gradual change. The idea of, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. And that's understandable because it's incredibly frustrating. I mean, to get uh, the Affordable Care Act in place was so much effort and such a heavy lift. And after it's all done, we still don't have secure medical care for everyone. Yeah. And there's still millions of people uninsured. And honestly, the Affordable Care Act was an enormous step forward, yeah. but it's so far enough. And that's frustrating to people understandably, correctly. Sure, sure. But I just don't think there's any practical option other than elections and trying to and trying to get marginal improvement after marginal improvement. Yeah. So what's kept you in the game? What's kept you going? Because I I completely understand why people give up out of just sheer fatigue from it all, you know? Like so what keeps you going? I guess being soft. Um I mean it's not like uh, you know, the only thing I can do is these little cartoons, and hopefully they're helping in some small way, or at least, you know, cheering the people who are doing the real work. Right. But I I just haven't stopped being infuriated. Um, it just, I keep on being angry. If anything, it's getting worse. And I'm trying to manage it. I'm trying to, like, okay, here's my hour when I'm going to read Twitter and be infuriated. And I'm not going to let myself do it anymore that day because I need to have other things in my life. But, and also, you know, I mean, I have a pretty easy life. So uh, that probably makes it easier. You know, my form of fighting is sitting at my desk and drawing. Yeah. Well, not necessarily because you would think uh, of easier life, you'd be, it'd be a lot easier to disengage because it's like, really, your life's still fine one way or the other. Whereas, you know, people who are, whose lives are, not doing great or stuck in the fight whether they like it or not you know what i mean but they even they give up so i think there is something yeah, to say no. about your own constitution as to how you're able to keep going even when you could easily just stop there is that and you're completely right but i still think that my position um sort of shields me a little bit from burnout i think that someone who's someone who has no choice but to be in the fight every day yeah. is uh, is going to have a harder time resisting burnout 
than someone sitting at a desk drawing cartoons. So. Yeah, no kidding. It is. It is definitely. It's and like I said. It's a this whole politics. Just it's rough. It's the whole thing is rough for all parties involved. So I guess my question is like, if you is there's only one to say to an audience, like to anybody who's right now low on their spirits and feeling fatigued, what would you say to them? Goodness, I have no idea. Please, I'd say please keep going. And if you can't keep going, then please prioritize yourself. If you need to take a month or a week or a year off to be able to take care of yourself and recover, then do it because there'll be more years after that year you take off. This fight is not going away. No, it will not. probably. So if you could last longer by giving yourself a break, if you could last longer by deciding I'm going to go a month without newspapers or I'm going to go stay, in my, stay with my cousin, stay on my cousin's sofa who's in a less contentious area for a couple of weeks. Not everyone has the ability to do things like that, right. but if you can't, I think people should. Taking care of yourself is part of the fight. It's part of the fight. Uh, yeah, being, sure. able to, being able to keep yourself going for the long haul is not is not slacking off or chickening out. It's part of what needs to be done. And I agree with all that, because that is, because that's what this is. This is a long fight that's, in truth, never going to end, you know? So you do need to disengage from time to time to recover, because, yeah, this, this is exhausting. It is demoralizing. It is frustrating. And if you burn out, it's, you, you're, doing your own, you're doing your own cause a lot more harm than good. So you're absolutely right, and I, uh, I hope my audience takes that to heart. Now, let me ask you something, because I haven't watched every video, but I was looking at your YouTube channel, and man, are you productive. You're like uh, doing multiple videos a day. So um, what keeps you from burning out? Do you give yourself breaks? At this point, I am pretty sure I've gone insane, but... Uh... <laughs> I, I think I'm past that point because, you know, it, it started me with all this. It started with getting into politics. You know, at first I was, it started from curiosity to then I was, mm -hmm. I was angry. Then I was depressed, you know, because I was powerless. I wasn't doing anything. Then I was uh, angry again. And then it's just the anger and the depression and powerless kind of mixed into a kind of madness where now I'm just like, fuck it. I'm going all in on this. I, I'm I'm done. I'm done. Whole just sitting around, uh, holding myself back and yelling at myself. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna yell into the void. I'm gonna reach out to. Me. I'm just gonna get involved with politics and will and just uh, play it uh, as I go. You know, at this point, I, I it is sheer madness that is motivating me now. Let me ask you: Would you ever run for office? I plan to actually. Excellent. I mean, you're a good. You're obviously a good speaker, and you can talk on your feet, which is so important. And I think that also maybe having a military background can be helpful in politics. Brother, I have absolutely taken advantage of, of my veteran status to uh, you know get in good with uh, within just in my local politics. Because even though I don't really think too much, too highly of it, everyone else does. So I absolutely have made use of that. Uh, to, you know, to get the support I've needed thus far. I am involved with my local politics within my district and, my, and in my, and my county. Like, I'm, I'm a delegate for Bernie to the, to the National Convention. 
You know what I mean? Um, I'm the I'm a field organizer for a awesome. state, you know for a state senate candidate right now here in my in my, in my county. Uh, volunteer coordinator for the county, and I am currently starting uh, going to be leading the uh, veterans and military family caucus that we're creating tonight. This is awesome. Like I said, so uh, that's is, wonderful. Thank you for doing all that. I, I, it's like I said, it's pure madness motivating me now. I'm, <laughs> I'm done. I mean, I, the thing is, I encourage everybody. Like, I get it. We all have our limitations, but I'm like, but if you can get involved in your local politics in some capacity, no matter how small, do it. Like, if you know any some progressive candidates, support them. If you know your county needs any kind of help in any way, support them. Like, get involved in some capacity. Even if even if it's just doing what you do, you know what I mean? Because what you do does it is um I would say it's refreshing and informative because it, it puts them in perspective in a way that people can understand the the socio political issues in our country. You know what I mean? So in any way that you can do it, don't just sit around and waiting for somebody else to do it. You know? Yeah, the way I think of it is, it is such a big fight that there's room for millions of us to contribute each in our own ways. Yeah, absolutely. So there's no, there's no limit on the number of people who can do it. And people have to go along with their own drives and their own talents. Yeah. Um, you know, I could never do what you're doing because I don't have the talent and the drive for that. But that's okay because you're one doing that and I do my thing. Yeah, I could not do what you do. I, I wanted to, but I'm, uh, I'm not... Uh... It's just, that's not, like, I can draw a little bit, but not nearly good enough to do that. And I definitely just, I just don't have the faculties to invest in the way that you have in your craft, you know? So it's just, you do what works for you, I'm going to do what works for me, you know? And I encourage people to find their own thing. Like, what works for you, do that. We don't all have to be doing the exact same thing. I'm totally with you on this. So are you a comics reader? I do, I am. So you say am I a comics reader? Yes. Yes, I am. I read, I read some online web comics. Like I said, I've read some of yours. I, um, like I said, right now, particularly, I just follow a few web comics and then a few mangas. Mm. And, the, and then any, if there's any comics around, I'll definitely pick them up. But that, that's about it. Like I said, it's, I did, basically, as far as like, the things that entertain me, like comics and all that, it just, whatever catches my eye at the time. At the, like, I don't really have the the luxury to just go all in on it the way I, I, I used to before I started doing all this. Oh, uh, sure. It's amazing as you get older, time becomes so much more limited. Right. Um, so I remember I used to reread books so much, and now I'm like, rereading? Who has the time for that? I barely got time uh, You know, one enormous difference between us in terms of generation mm-hmm. is that when I was your age, when I wanted to read manga, I had to go down to the Japanese bookstore in Manhattan. Holy shit. And I just explore the manga there on the second floor. And it was all in Japanese, which I don't read. So it was a matter of trying to figure out what was going on and looking at all this. But it was such an amazing world of comics that had always been hidden from me that it was fascinating. It means cartoonist friends would spend hours browsing books we couldn't read in the store. and. Just picking out something to buy. Yeah. And uh, and now, of course, I mean, the, I think that um, started, being, started being translated. I think the turning point was when people figured out that you could still have manga be read from right to left mm-hmm. in English and people 
people would be able would still read it and enjoy it because that made uh, that made, simplified the production process of yeah. translating them and, and made it way less expensive for the publishers. Ah, yeah, exactly. And that's amazing. And it's changed comics in so many ways. The manga explosion, I think, is a lot of the reason. Like, when I was 16 going to cons, like, sorry, going to comic conventions. Yeah, no, I got you. Probably for every 20 guys there, there would be one woman. And now, if you go to a convention, it's pretty much 50-50. Oh, yeah. doesn't mean that sex is installed, but, you know, it's just no longer a boys club. And thank God for that. God. And I think that manga was part of what did that by just having a bunch of comics, which were created with the expectation that the readership would include girls, led to a lot more girls becoming into the comics during that essential early age when we need to push it on them and make them addicts. Yeah, Sailor Moon, the the the, the, the mangaka for Sailor the for Sailor Moon, she, you know, I mean, she made that with the intent, you know, so she expected a more the the women audience, you know, the characters were all in her words with the the kind of friends that she wished she'd had growing up, so it was always there, and I guess like I said, publishers definitely underestimated just how popular that stuff would be in America, you know what I mean, to English reading audiences, the English speaking audiences and such. Yeah, and. The comics industry is still, I mean, the, there's so much sexism in it, especially I think, in, the, in, the, in the superhero genre, but it's definitely gotten better. But you talk to a lot of, I mean, a lot of fans don't even know that the best-selling uh, graphic novelist in the country by a pretty good shot is a woman because she's doing... Girls' middle school comics, uh, Raina Telemagier. I hope I didn't just mangle Raina's last name pronunciation. And you have all these, some superhero fans are just so constrained in their taste that they're not even aware of the best-selling comics in the country. Yeah, definitely. It's always good to broaden your horizons, you know what I mean? Like, for me, I I can be pretty fixated on my other thing, on the, you know, a a particular thing, but uh, as the years have gone by, I have become more and more open to you know, broader things. Like, I don't know if you uh, know Mary Cagle. You know what I mean? Uh, her comics of Sleepless Domain and Kiwi Blitz. Like, I, 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 I love that shit. And, and it, it's a predominantly female cast written by a woman. And definitely would be, I would say, significantly more appealing to women. But it's just, the writing is great. Everything about it is great. You know what I mean? It, it's just, you got to look past, okay, I guess, your own taste and think, there might be some stuff out there you... That'll definitely catch you if you, you know, give it a chance. Oh, yeah. And uh, I haven't read that comic. Uh, one thing that really has changed is that in 1990, it was actually possible to read every interesting comic that came out in the English language. You could do it because there weren't that many. <laughs> now, it's completely impossible even know about all the interesting comics out there because there are so many and that's awesome and so much better on when you when you post this will you put a link to that comic in uh in the text below i absolutely will i I said great i'll check it out yep for you to see and the audience because i highly recommend her work she is a phenomenal artist and writer and uh, it's been a it's been a blast uh keeping up with her for these last couple years but uh, well, my it's, it's we're nearing an hour, so I want to ask you one more thing that's been a 
uh, topic of discussion is, like I said, and we, we briefly touched on this, is, you know, the gradual change. Would you say that things have gotten better or would you think they've gotten worse? Like, just overall as a society. If I had to answer overall, I would say overall things have improved. But a more truthful answer would be that society is large and complicated and some things have improved. Uh, the improvement in gay rights since I was first becoming aware of the world seems like a miracle to me. It's a million times better. And that's not to say it's completely solved, but it's so much better. Yeah. The good experiences some trans kids are now having growing up, if they're lucky enough to be in the right family and in the right community, is something that would not have been possible in the 1980s. Right. So there are areas of huge improvement, but at the same time, uh, you know, the Supreme Court gutted voting rights. And so you can't say it's getting better in every area. You just got, we just got to hope that it's going to, that if we keep on pushing, we'll continue to have gradual improvements overall. Yeah, that's, a, that's what I try to tell people is that you got to broaden your scope outside of what just the now. You got to think big picture in that, you know, things have gotten better, you know? They, they say, like you, like you said, you know, gay marriage being legalized was, was the, you wouldn't even have thought that were possible back then, you know, 20, 30 years ago, but, but now it's just the standard. You know what I mean? It's just things can change for the better. You just, we just got to stay in the fight, you know, and that's why I want to encourage people to stay in the fight because if we start giving up and throwing our hands up and walking away from it all, well, the bad guys are going to win and it'll undo all these good change that we've had up to this point. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's it. Any, any, you got any, one last message to the audience? Anything you want to say to them? Boy, um, just that everyone plan for the long haul. Uh, keep yourselves healthy so you can keep resisting and keep it going for decades. And hopefully we'll all have each other's backs. I respect that. And that's the plan, brother. All right, I'm going to end this here. Audience, and thank you. Uh, uh, Barry Deutsch, thank you very much for coming on. This is uh, Barry Deutsch from uh, your comics. Uh, you say the names. I'm, I'm tongue-tied at the moment. Okay, so to find my comics, the political comics, uh, easiest way is to go to leftycartoons.com. And I also do a comic with Becky Hawkins about a lesbian superhero in the 1940s who protects the bar scene from corrupt cops. And that's called Super Butch. And you can find that at superbutchcomic.com. And to learn about Hereville, uh, just Google a uh, graphic novel about Orthodox Jewish girl and you'll find it. Send me all of that. And I'm going to put the, all that in the description and, in a, and pin that on the comic. So in the comment section, so people can see all of that. Sure. Oh, great idea. I will send you relevant links. Send me those relevant links and I'll make sure they are easily available for people to find. So with that being said, thank you all for uh, uh, sticking around for the, uh, this episode of Dorico Dialogues. Y'all take care.